Most of us are well familiar, if not all of us, with the organizational structure of the Lord's Church. The fact that the Church of our Lord is autonomous, that is, every congregation is independent. There is no earthly headquarters. Uh, There is no earthly head of the church. Our head is in heaven at the right hand of God. That head is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He uh, is the chief shepherd. And in the organizational structure of the church, he has, through his will, given us instruction for appointing those who are the under-shepherds, if you will, that is, those who are under the chief shepherd. And it's appropriate to refer to them in that way by implication from a passage that we have looked at in the past when we studied 1 Peter, and that is chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And here's the key verse. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That does not fade away. When the chief shepherd appears, the implication there is that Christ, of course, that's the explicit statement, he's the chief shepherd. The implication is you as elders who are addressed in this context are the under shepherds. And of course, we know that one of the words that describes the elders is the word shepherd. And what an awesome responsibility This is to be an under-shepherd, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But that's the organizational structure of the church, that the shepherds, the elders, the pastors, as they are referred to, the bishops, the overseers, the various terms that all refer to the same office, to the same work, they are charged with the responsibility of being the overseers of the congregation that is among them that congregation being autonomous, as we said. Then there are the deacons who labor as special servants under the oversight of those uh, elders, and they help to expedite the various work of the church that is to be uh, done, and uh, yet they are not the leaders uh, in the Lord's church. The leaders are truly the shepherds, the elders, but the deacons are special servants uh, under their oversight. The preacher is not the leader uh, of the church or one of the leaders of the church even for that matter. He is a member of the church with a special responsibility to preach the gospel, to do the work of an evangelist as Paul admonished Timothy uh, to do. And then all of the members obviously are subject to the oversight of the leadership or the elders. That's the fully organized structure that the Lord has designated for His church. And certainly we see the, the value of that. Whether we saw it or not, it wouldn't make any difference that it is the Lord's uh, will. But I think from a practical standpoint, we can see why the Lord structured the church as he did. It is autonomous, and therefore what one congregation does does not necessarily impact or influence negatively uh, the uh, activity of the other congregation or congregations in a specific uh, area. 
And yet we have a responsibility, though we are autonomous, to warn uh, about congregations that depart from the faith and to warn the flock uh, that is uh, among us about that. And the elders have that responsibility and that task to do. But I would never want us to take uh, for granted the work that the elders, who are the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, take for granted the work that they do, uh, the tremendous responsibility that they have, and the importance of their work. Now, I said all that to lead into the section of First Thessalonians tonight that we are going to be looking at, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 5. Because here is another passage that emphasizes very, very strongly how highly we should esteem those who are over us in the Lord. The context of verse 12 of chapter 5 clearly indicates that elders are under consideration here. And listen to what Paul writes to these brethren at Thessalonica and thus to us, if we are brethren here tonight, members of the Lord's body, what he writes to us tonight about the work of these men. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. These are extremely important admonitions in the latter part of this epistle, Paul's first epistle, to the Thessalonians. We urge you, we plead with you, we beg you, brethren, we exhort you, as the New King James says, to recognize. The King James says to know those who labor, to know them, to recognize them. That doesn't mean that when I see one of the elders, I recognize him as one of the elders. I know his face. I may even know his name. That's not what is involved here. It goes well beyond that kind of casual recognition and acknowledgement. This goes to uh, the very deep uh, and uh, very uh, tender relationship that is to sustain, be sustained between those who, uh, who are over us and those who are under their oversight. Recognize those. Know them. Uh, approve them. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Comfort them. Cooperate with them because they labor among you. That word labor is not a word that indicates that from time to time the elders are involved in doing a few things in the role of leadership in the church. It does not in any way indicate that the work of the elder or the position of the elder or the office of the elder is an honorary position. It's a great honor, certainly, uh, to, uh, to be qualified and to be involved in the work uh, of an elder. But it is not an honorary position. It is a work. Remember what Paul wrote uh, in uh, the first epistle to Timothy. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good what? Work. He desires a good work. It is work. And the work, the word here for labor indicates wearisome or laborious work that is tiresome work. It indicates very, very intense labor. And so elders are those who are laboring intensely. They are working hard among you. They have tremendous responsibility. 
They have an awesome responsibility upon their shoulders because, as other passages point out, they watch for the souls of the members. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, a passage we bring in here. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you. That clearly is a reference to the elders who rule over you. Of course, indicating very clearly the authority that the elders have. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Then verse 17 of that same 13th chapter of Hebrews. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. There's the awesome responsibility that, that elders have. They are going to have to stand before God and Christ in the judgment and give account as to how well they have discharged their responsibilities toward the flock that is among them. And then the writer of Hebrews in the latter part of that verse says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. If elders have discharged faithfully their responsibility and the account they have to give having done everything they could to discharge their responsibilities towards you is an account that is negative for you in the long run, in the final analysis, that's unprofitable for you. If they fail to discharge their responsibilities toward you and they give a negative report based upon their failure with you, but their failure with you is somewhat chargeable to them, then it's going to be unprofitable for them and for you if you are among those whom they have not overseen properly. And so it is a two-way street. There is the responsibility of the elders to watch for the flock so that they can give an account faithfully for themselves as watchmen for God. And it is certainly profitable for us if indeed they can give an account having discharged their responsibility fully for us with joy because we stand by them as it were in the judgment approved of God in Christ. That's the way the Lord wants it to be. Elders discharging their responsibility and members discharging their responsibility to work under their oversight in a cooperative way. How cooperative? Listen to the relationship that is suggested here. They're over you and the Lord. And what else do they do? They admonish you. They admonish you. That again suggests very clearly they have the authority to do that. They have the responsibility to do that. And when admonition is necessary and elders fail to give that admonition, they fail in their responsibility. But when elders do not fail in their responsibility to admonish and they admonish me and I don't take it well, and I don't like it because they have discharged their God-given responsibility, then I am at fault. And I have to take very seriously my responsibility to appreciate to the fullest extent the admonition that may at times be necessary toward me from them and never to resent that admonition. Obviously, they are to do it in a Christian way. They're to do it with patience. They're to do it with love but they are to do it. They are to do it. They have the authority to do it, and they must discharge that responsibility. But notice what verse 13 further adds here that is so important. It's not just a question of their responsibility to admonish and my responsibility to accept the admonition, but verse 13 says, in accepting that admonition, in accepting that they have the responsibility to admonish 
the flock. I'm to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, which includes those admonitions that are necessary from time to time. In other words, I am to recognize and appreciate fully the authority that they have and appreciate them more than words can express for discharging that responsibility that they have toward me and toward the fellow members of the flock of God wherever I am. Listen to it. Esteem them what? Very highly. Very highly. And what that implies, and that's a superlative, that's a clear superlative as to the attitude that we as members of the body of Christ are to have toward godly elders, toward those elders who are truly qualified and who are discharging their responsibility to God and to the church faithfully. I am to esteem them very highly. In what? In fear. No, in love. In love. I am to love them with the deepest possible love Esteem them with the very highest esteem that I can possibly muster for their works sake. Not because they may be successful businessmen in the secular world and therefore uh, somebody has thought, well, you know, he's been such a success in the business world, wouldn't he be a great elder? Well, he might be and he might not be. He might not be. I'm not to esteem him because he's been successful in various secular realms. I am to esteem him very highly for his work's sake in the Lord. For the fact that he is wearing himself out. Going back to that word labor and the kind of intense labor that is involved there. He's wearing himself out in the work of the Lord for my sake. Watching for my soul. Guarding my soul. And then listen to this admonition. Be at peace among yourselves. Does that have any connection to what Paul has just been urging here? Oh, it has every connection to it. What he's saying is that peace in the congregation will prevail where the very things that he has just urged us to do and the elders to do, where those things are in place. Where is it that peace does not prevail? It's where members don't appreciate perhaps an admonition that they deserve to have from the elders, but when it comes, they don't appreciate it, and they start telling others how they didn't appreciate it. And before you know it, you've got a factious spirit that arises because they fail to understand the authority and the responsibility that elders have toward their precious souls. That's how factions arise is when attitudes are such that we do not fully appreciate and recognize the work that these men are charged by God with doing. And we don't respond as we should to the work that they seek to carry out faithfully. And we fail to esteem them highly for their work's sake and we fail to appreciate the fact that they may need to admonish us, they may, do, may need to correct us, they may need to encourage us at times in ways that, that from a human standpoint we might not find to be all that pleasant but the point is, if we love them and appreciate them for their work's sake and we know where their heart is and what they're trying to do in carrying out God's work, our responsibility is to appreciate to the fullest extent that they love me enough to correct me when I need to be corrected. And if I fail to appreciate that, then peace will not prevail where that attitude prevails. 
But where the attitude prevails that Paul has just expressed leading up to that statement, be at peace among yourselves, there will be peace. There will be peace. And that's why we must never lose sight of the awesome responsibility, nor must we ever lose sight of the appreciation that we should have for these men who are our overseers and who, who watch for our souls. The Bible has much to say, but here's another passage we're looking at in the context of 1 Thessalonians that is so, so crucial to the relationship that we have with those who are the elders of the church. Are they perfect men? No. No, no scripture ever says you have to be a perfect man uh, to be an elder. There is no such thing, obviously. None of us is sinless. Uh, we're human beings. Do elders sometimes uh, fall short? Do they make mistakes? Well, of course they do, uh, as all of us do. But that doesn't mean because they fall short at times that they're disqualified from, uh, from serving. If they deal with their shortcomings as God would have them deal, then that's simply another indication that they are qualified uh, to be elders because they're not puffed up. They are not diatrophies uh, types in their attitude, and they recognize with genuine humility their own shortcomings and frailties. But at the same time, they also recognize their responsibility to deal with our frailties and our shortcomings, and to admonish us in the Lord. That's what verse 12 tells us, and verse 13 tells us a great deal about what our attitude should be toward that. Peace, peace. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it can be maintained, and it will be maintained in congregations that understand relationships like the ones Paul is discussing here, relationships between members and the elders. As much as is possible, as depends upon you, be at peace with all men, Paul elsewhere wrote in Romans 12 and verse 18. Various admonitions are found in Scripture for us to be at peace and to live at peace. But one way that we can help to ensure that peace is to understand the relationship between the eldership and the membership and to make sure that we maintain the right attitude in that relationship. Now, lest we should think that it is only the elders who have any responsibility for exhortation and for admonition, look at verse 14 of our text tonight. Now we exhort you, brethren. Now, I believe we're back to brethren again, not just the elders, but we exhort you, brethren, here. Remember verse 12, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. And he discussed the elders and their responsibility. Now, brethren again, verse 14, we exhort you, brethren, to do what? Warn those who are unruly. Whose responsibility then is it to warn those who are unruly or disorderly? Whose responsibility is that? Not just the elders. And that's what we as members of the body of Christ need to appreciate. We have a responsibility to each other, to encourage each other, and yes, at times to warn each other. Warn those who are unruly or disorderly. Same word, form of the same word is used over in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6 for unruly. Disorderly in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3 
in the New King James, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And so there he talks about discipline again, uh, withdrawing from brothers who walk disorderly. And that word disorderly and the word unruly, which is a, a form of that same word here in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, uh, indicates one who's out of the ranks, one who's out of step, or one who has left the ranks, as in a soldier who has left the ranks or is out of step. You know, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, with that connotation of that word that is used there and also in first, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. It's rather interesting that there are those who contend in the matter of discipline, and we talked about discipline recently, that when a brother uh, leaves the ranks altogether... When he leaves the ranks, when he leaves the congregation, he's no longer subject to discipline. And yet the very word in its meaning concerning those from whom we are to withdraw fellowship involves someone who has left the ranks. A military suggestion here. Having left the ranks. He's AWOL. And yet there are those who contend sometimes in the church that when they go completely AWOL, we have no further responsibility toward them because they've already left us rather than our... Uh, leaving them or having any responsibility toward them. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that. As we've said before, discipline is a matter that the church takes toward the one who needs the discipline, not vice versa. And so this idea of unruliness or disorderliness is one with which Paul deals. Now, I admit that in the context uh, of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there were those who were idle and who were not working they were disorderly in that sense, and Paul addresses that specific problem. But does that mean that because he addresses that specific problem with this word disorderly and applies it to those who were not working and who were idle, that that's the only application it has when it comes to church discipline? I remember having an elder try to tell me one time that it meant just that, and that since it was a context here where Paul was talking to the Thessalonians about some among them who were not working and who were idle, that that, yes, if we had somebody like that, we could withdraw from them. But unless that specific situation was involved, then withdrawal wouldn't be uh, pertinent. I had an elder in the Lord's church tell me that and argue that with me on, uh, on an occasion many years ago. Why, that would mean that unless something is specifically mentioned in Scripture and withdrawal of fellowship is associated with it, you can't withdraw on anything else that's not specifically mentioned in Scripture. Well, of course the Bible does not uh, teach us in that fashion. Any sin of which a one, uh, an individual will not repent is one that is worthy of discipline, uh, the disciplinary process, obviously. It begins with admonition. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? that Paul here in this passage we're looking at in verse 14 says, warn those who are unruly. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, he says, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Disorderly, unruly being from the same, uh, the same word in the original. So what's the point? We admonish, and admonition is a part of the disciplinary process, but if admonition is not heeded and repentance is not forthcoming, ultimately what? we must take that final step of withdrawal of fellowship. And so we don't begin with withdrawal of fellowship in the disciplinary process, but by the same token, we don't avoid it altogether when it becomes necessary. 
That gets us back to the work that elders have to do, and it gets us back to the attitude of the members toward those elders when they do carry out that responsibility. We are to support it, and we're to be completely supportive of those efforts. So, brethren, it's not the elders who withdraw fellowship. It's not the elders who, uh, who warn the unruly. It's you, brethren, he says. You must be involved. Every Christian has a responsibility to help every other Christian and to encourage them. Comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort the faint-hearted. The King James says feeble-minded. Faint-hearted, I think, is a better uh, rendering because it indicates they're, they're faint of heart. In other words, they're, um, they're discouraged at times. Uh, they are uh, those who, uh, who become discouraged by circumstances. Lift them up, comfort them, help them, strengthen them. And then he says, uphold the weak. Uh, there are those who are at times uh, weak in their faith. And um, uh, White Oak is not uh, immune to, uh, to that. Surely we know uh, some, uh, even here at White Oak, who are not as strong in their faith, as is evident by their actions, as others. Uh, they need more encouragement. They need to be uh, strengthened. And um, any congregation of any size is going to have uh, those who are among those who could be characterized as weaker than, than others for various reasons. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul wrote, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. In this case, he's talking about those who had some scruples against certain things that were neither right nor wrong, but, but they were weak in the sense that they had not come to the knowledge about these things, and we need to be patient with them. And uh, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And so comfort the faint-hearted, uh, those who at times become discouraged. Uh, uphold the weak. But then he adds, be patient with all. Be patient with all. Long-suffering, long-suffering uh, needs to be exercised with everyone, with all. And lest the Thessalonians might think that, well, these are these are only responsibilities I have to carry out with those who are my fellow members of the church, he says, with all, with everyone. Even those outside the body of Christ, we're to exercise patience and long-suffering with them and do everything that we can to lead them to Christ. And then, finally, verse 15, the last verse we'll consider tonight, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, to anyone but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And again, here's the idea that, well, if, if all uh, includes being patient with all who are in the body of Christ, and the context may lean heavily toward that, but lest we think that there's no responsibility in anyone outside the body of Christ, see that no one, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. No question about the fact that anyone here uh, would certainly include those outside the body uh, of Christ. And I think being patient with all would certainly indicate that even when we're trying to teach someone, we have to do that with patience, don't we? Even those outside the body of Christ, for sure. Rendering evil for evil. Uh, four ways that one can respond to evil or conduct oneself. Uh, the cruel way is to return... Uh, uh, is to return evil for, uh, for good, uh, evil for good. Uh, the uh, common way is evil for evil, 
The courteous way would be good for good, but the Christian way is what? Good for evil. Good for evil. Return good for evil. The Christian way is far above any other, any other way that is practiced by man in terms of reacting to evil. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Both what is good for yourselves and for all. In Romans chapter 12, we looked at verse 18, uh, 18 a few moments ago. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. But in verses 19 and 20, Paul in that letter goes on to write, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing... You will heap coals of fire on his head. So elsewhere, Paul reaffirms what he writes here, that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but pursuing what is good both for yourselves and for all. And doesn't that tell me that I can and should consider myself in terms of doing what's best for me as well as what is good for others? Remember what the Lord said, love your neighbor as yourself, that's the second uh, great commandment under the law. Uh, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second liken to it is this, love your neighbor as what? As yourselves. Love for self is not wrong, as long as it is a healthy self-love. And I am to do what's good for me as well as for others. And the most important area in which I need to be concerned about doing what's good for me is doing what's good for me spiritually. And tonight, as we close our thoughts, the best thing you can do for yourself spiritually is to make sure that you are right with God spiritually. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you are not right with God. And you're not a Christian tonight if you have not believed in Jesus as the Christ, repented of your sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and been buried with Him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Repent or perish, the Lord said in Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. Confess me and I will confess you before the Father in heaven, the Lord said, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, verse 16. Those simple but essential steps put one into Christ and make one a Christian, nothing more, nothing Less. If you need to come home to your first love, having left that love and gone into the world and need to come home, you do so by repentance of that sin or sins publicly if the sins are known in that way with a prayer on your lips and in your heart to the God of heaven who forgives as we pray with you and for you. If you need to respond, please come now as we stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love wilt thou roam? 
farther and farther away, calling today, calling today, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. Jesus is calling the weary to rest, calling today, calling today. Bring him thy burden and thou shalt be blessed, he will not turn thee away. Calling today, calling today. is calling, is tenderly calling today. Jesus is pleading, oh list to his voice, hear him today, hear him today. They who believe on his name shall rejoice, quickly arise and awake. Calling today. is calling, is tenderly calling today. Be seated, please. Are there those here who have not partaken of the Lord's Supper today and would like to do so? Okay, I see one. Turn your books to number 96. 96. Ninety-six. Let's sing all three verses. A rather short song, appropriate for this occasion. Number ninety-six. In the hour of trial, Jesus plead for me, lest by base denial I depart from Thee. When thou seest me waver with a look recall, nor for fear nor favor suffer me to fall. With forbidden pleasures would this vain world jar. Or its sordid treasures spread to work me hard. Bring to my remembrance sad guess in the or in darker semblance cross crown Calvary. Should thy mercy send me sorrow, toil, and woe, or should pain attend me on my path below, grant that 
fail thy hand to see. Grant that I may ever cast my care on thee. Would you please raise your hand once more? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this loaf that represents the body of our Savior, the Christ, through whose death we have the hope of eternal life with you. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. In like manner, Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this fruit of the vine that represents the willingly shed blood of the Savior, through whose cleansing power we have the hope of eternal life with you. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Includes the memorial service, the collection plate is being left on the table for those who did not have the opportunity this morning. Are there any other announcements to be made? Steve, do you have anything to say? No. <laughs> Pardon? I'll mention it in closing prayer. Okay. Well, let's sing number 54 for closing. Stand, please. Number 54. Rather short song. Let's sing all three verses. Number 54, and then we'll be dismissed. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsel's guide uphold you with the sheep securely fold. 
you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Till we meet, till we meet. God be with you till we meet again. God be with you till we meet again. Neath his wings protecting heart, you daily manna still provide. You, God, be with you till we meet again. Till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Till we meet, till we be with you till we meet again. Keep love's banner floating o'er you. Smite the threatening with before you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we everyone's presence this evening. We hope you'll be back with us Wednesday evening. This will wind up our summer series uh, Wednesday evening on the subject of abortion. And, and I know you, you know this is a very controversial topic. Jim, I love that sermon. Although it sent a chill up my back and scared me to death. Seriously though, this could be a, a difficult work for for any elder, but because of this congregation's cooperation, your support, your encouragement, it, it's, a, um, it's a blessing to be here. And I appreciate each and every one of you. And I'm sure John and JC feel the same. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before thy throne this evening thankful for another beautiful day you've given us for a reasonable amount of health that we're able to be here and fellowship. We thank you, Father, for the messages we have heard today. We pray that you will be with us as we, we take these messages and apply them to our lives, that we may uh, be more capable of reaching others around us. We thank you for your son, for his example, for his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray, Father, that you will watch over each of us as we depart that we may have a safe and productive week and bring us back at the next appointed time 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.